Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. The practice of dowsing goes by many names, and it's been used for hundreds of years. At least, dowsers use a variety of techniques to find water, gold, oil, and other things. Today, we begin looking at the practice of dowsing, and we speak with an expert on the top. What is dowsing? What do we know about it, and how does it work? Next time, we're going to go straight into the faith perspective on dowsing, and what we have to say will probably come as a big surprise for people. I certainly was quite surprised when I started researching the faith perspective on dowsing, so be ready for that. You're listening to episode 247 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about dowsing from the faith and reason perspectives. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Last week, we interviewed Dr. Paul Smith on the history and concept of dowsing. This week, we look at it from the faith and reason perspectives. What does the Christian faith have to say about dowsing? What do scientific studies of it show? And what should we make of it all? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, is there anything we should say before we begin today's interview? Last time we covered the basic concept of dowsing, and we talked about some of Paul Smith's experiences with the practice, including an experience uh, using it to find contraband on a huge cargo container ship when he was part of the government Stargate program, and also a more recent experience where he used it to find a box of teddy bears for a friend so that she could give them to her grandchildren. We also talked about the history of dowsing, the different kinds of instruments that people uh, use to douse, the different kinds of things they douse for, and the different dowsing techniques that exist. So you can go back and listen to last week's episode, number 246, if you'd like to review any of that. Having provided background on dowsing last time, this time we go into analysis mode. As always on Mysterious World, we look at things from the faith and reason perspectives, and at the end of last week's show, we had a cliffhanger where I just introduced the subject of the faith perspective. So that's right where we're going to pick up this time. We're going to talk about dowsing in the Bible, dowsing in Mormon theology, since Paul's Mormon and what the Catholic Church has to say about dowsing, and be prepared for a big surprise there. I was very surprised when I started looking into the history of dowsing in the Catholic Church and what the Church has said about it. Then we'll look at uh, dowsing from the reason perspective, and among other things, talk about what scientific studies have said about dowsing. Anything else we should know before we start? Last week, um, I talked about what's known as the idiomotor effect, and that's a subject that's going to come up again this week. The idiomotor effect refers to small subconscious movements, typically of the hands, that can be used to control the movements of a dowsing rod or pendulum. In fact, uh, last week, I demonstrated how, using the idiomotor effect, I can make a pendulum move the way I want without consciously moving my hand. I can make it swing forward and back, left and right, clockwise, counterclockwise, and I can make it stop moving and switch between those movements. 
you can watch the video version of last week's episode to see a demonstration I did. And as we mentioned last time, skeptics often appeal to the ideomotor effect to explain dowsing. They sometimes say that the success dowsers sometimes have is just due to random chance, that there's already water in the ground or whatever, and the ideomotor effect makes their dowsing instrument move, like the tip of a dowsing rod uh, pointing downward all of a sudden, and then they randomly find the water. So Paul and I will be talking about that skeptical take on dowsing based on the ideomotor effect. And before we get to your interview with Dr. Paul Smith, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Renee S., Centex S., James C., Steely, and Christopher F. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. And now on to that interview with Dr. Smith. Let's talk about dowsing from the faith perspective, because, uh, you know, a lot of people are people of faith and, you know, how people relate their faith to practices like this can vary. There are, uh, you know, some people who, who get spooked by anything that has to do with the psychic or the paranormal and want to say, well, it's all demons. And so that's, you know, a, a thing that people will encounter. I think that some of the concern that people can have about dowsing is caused by a branding issue um, because dowsers are sometimes called water witches or witchers. And if that's what they're being called, that's just going to generate suspicions from a significant number of people, even though this isn't magic. And personally, I, I think that dowsers would be well advised not to encourage that kind of language. What do, what do you think? No, I think that's right. Although that's a, a more of a, uh, it, there's more of a narrow problem with that because it's typically water witching is an English term, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has been used here in the United States. And I think to some extent in, in England, but you don't have that term in French, for example, and there's a fair amount of dowsing that's gone on in France or in Spanish or in a lot of these in other languages. Um, I also kind of think this starting to go out of favor. I mean, if you were to ask the average person on the street, if you were asking what dowsing was, most of the, half the time they wouldn't know what you're talking about. If you ask them what water witching is, very often they'd say, I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah. So um, it, it may be taking care of itself, but now the problem, of course, is coming up with a recognizable term or educating people as to what dowsing means. So in, in uh, another term for dowsing, which is more common in Europe, is radesthesia, right? which sounds like some kind of illness, but means it's, it's essentially using a, using a rod right, or some kind of an object uh, as, well, essentially dowsing is the name for it. Like that. Trying, to, trying to 
trying to translate uh, uh, language. I don't even know what it means. <laughs> I know what it means, but help yeah. it out. So, yeah. So uh, I think, yeah, that is a problem. But I think actually the bigger problem is that it's associated as a form of divination, which at least from a religious perspective, uh, the word itself is pejorative in a way. In, mm-hmm. uh, at least in, in, uh, in Christian denominations, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and also not universally, but still. Uh, I think that word itself, even though dowsing, you could argue, isn't divination in any clear sense, unless you're using it to predict the future, which you can to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. For, for many people, um, especially in the Christian tradition, calling on spirits like pagan gods or demons to do things for you is really problematic from a faith perspective. And I know that some people who are dowsers may call on spirits, but there isn't anything about dowsing that inherently involves spirits, is there? No, in fact, I don't know of anything that dowsing has to do with it. I mean, some people's theory is that your spirit guys or whatever may be what's moving the rod or the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the whatever, but that's a very minority view, I think, mm-hmm. dowsing. And so, yeah, uh, no, absolutely not. And it's like with remote viewing. You get people out there who who are defining remote viewing by their own experience. So they may be channelers, they may be some kind of psychics, they may believe in spirit guides and all that stuff. And so their version of remote viewing is, oh, yeah, I'm being informed by my spirit guides. And it's, well, I'll be blunt, I think that's hogwash. <laughs> okay. in, in, in remote viewing, you have half, need absolutely no concept of external entity helping the process it's attributed to our own innate uh non-local and i'll often say spiritual capabilities that we as humans by definition have uh, by heredity have by whatever uh and dowsing is just like that if anything is even more so like that uh trying to attribute it to other entities i think is is just uh it's a blind alley. I don't think I think I don't think there's there there. So right, you're not invoking entities when you do dowsing or anything yeah. like that. So you would put dowsing in the same category as what other psychic phenomena are reported to be, which is some kind of natural human ability that doesn't depend on anything outside of us for it to function. Is that correct? Right. right. Well, it depends on anything outside of us. Well, of course. Well, I mean, any, 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 any entity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so one thing uh, to talk about from the faith perspective is the Bible. And there is a verse in the Bible that uh, some people have thought might deal with dowsing. The verse is Hosea 4.12. And in that passage, uh, God says this. My people inquire of a thing of wood. And their staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the harlot. The part of that that some people think refers to dowsing is the statement that their staff gives them oracles. And you'll even find some Bible translations, not a a lot, but some that translate the word staff as divining rod. But... That's nothing like a literal translation, and there are problems with the interpretation. The well, first has has always sounded like a a tendentious translation. That's someone injecting their own preconceptions onto the text. 
Yes, uh, the Hebrew word, and I believe you speak Hebrew, if I recall correctly. I don't speak it anymore, but <laughs> yeah. I studied it. I, that's what I what okay. I yeah. the The Hebrew word there is makel, and a makel is a branch or a stick, although it can mean staff or rod. But it doesn't refer to a dowsing rod specifically. Uh, you need something from the context to tell you that it would be that kind of rod. And the only thing we have in this context is a statement that people are somehow getting an oracle from a makel. But that doesn't in, have to indicate dowsing. Um, in the first place, there are lots of ways that you can do divining with sticks, and they're not all dowsing. For example, you could divine by randomly manipulating one or more sticks. That's the basis of the Chinese form of divination known as the I Ching, where you take a bundle of sticks and then you use a random process to form a pattern. Or you could take a single stick and let it fall and read the way it fell. You could take several sticks and draw lots with them, which is a, process, a practice we know was done in the ancient Near East, both among Israelites and among pagans. And in the New Testament. And in the New Testament. It's in the book of Acts, yes. Um, you also could look at a branch. Since the word means branch, you could look at a branch on a tree and notice the way it forks or the way leaves are growing on it or the way fruit is growing on it and read a meaning out of that. So there's bunches of ways that you could get an oracle from a branch, and we don't have evidence here in the text that dowsing was the particular thing they were doing. Furthermore, if you look at the context, it makes clear that pagan deities are involved. And that's obvious if you read the whole chapter, but if you look just at, at the second part of the verse we're talking about, it says, For a spirit of harlotry has led them, the Israelites, astray. And they have left their God to play the harlot. The harlotry is a common term that's used in the prophets to refer to Israelites worshiping other gods. And that's clearly the case here because it says they've left their God to play the harlot. So even if this were referring to dowsing, it wouldn't be dowsing considered by itself. It would be dowsing done by calling on pagan deities and doing anything calling on a pagan deity is a different act, morally speaking. Uh, furthermore, it seems clear that whatever oracles these people were obtaining from their branches, they were calling on pagan deities to do so. And that raises another possibility about what the branch might refer to. It might refer to a pagan idol. Uh, there were lots of little pagan idols known as teraphim or household gods that were made out of branches of wood. And, and, and let, me, let me interject yeah. that, that reading the first line of that verse. That's what I thought of at first. I mean, mm -hmm. an idol made of wood, right? So yeah. yeah. And it would make a lot of sense to say people are getting an oracle from their little pagan idols, since gods give oracles. Um, it also may be a specific kind of pagan ritual object, that one of a few kinds that we know about. For example, the worshipers of the Canaanite goddess Asherah were famous for having a pole known as an Asherah pole that they used in their worship services. And so maybe this makel or branch is an Asherah pole. Similarly, it's believed that there were pillars that were used to represent the god Baal. And specifically, they're thought to have represented Baal's masculine part. 
Uh, so maybe that was the kind of rod that they were getting an oracle from. There's also evidence of sacred trees being used in Canaanite worship, so that could be it. But in any event, whatever is being condemned in Hosea 4.12 was a, pa- a practice that involved worshiping pagan deities, and that alone would have been enough to condemn it. Given the other uncertainties we have regarding what this even means, I don't think we can read a condemnation of dowsing out of this verse. What do you think? Yeah, I think, again, it's kind of like the cave art painting, isn't it? That uh, there's real ambiguity here. There, There is a certain suggestive similarity that people are free to run with in whatever direction they want to go. And, and this just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have at least the components of how we understand dowsing, other than the fact we're talking about a stick. And that, that's the connection, you know, it's a stick. So is it dowsing? I don't know. Is it an idol? Maybe. Uh, is it a condemnation of dowsing per se? Clearly not. Uh, you can interpret or read into it any way you want, which, of course, people have done with the Bible for millennia. And so, you know, I think it's an interesting reference, but I don't think it actually tells us much of anything about it. I think more interesting, although it's not clearly dowsing, is how David used the ephod as a mm-hmm. in, uh, instrument of divination, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's more like scrying, perhaps. But nonetheless, uh, that seems to be more clear in incidents of something that we would call paranormal than this particular passage does. So. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Paul, you come from a Latter-day Saints perspective. Um, does the Mormon faith have anything, does it have a particular teaching on dowsing or a common view on dowsing? Not happily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <clears throat> we do have a interesting little history in the past uh, involving dowsing. So <clears throat> the founder of the church, uh, Joseph Smith, um, he was aided by uh, a man named Oliver Cowdery. He was a school teacher and actually quite accomplished guy for those days. Uh, and in, in, the, in modern Mormonism, you would never know that this was the case, but in some of our early scriptures, uh, Oliver Cowdery was almost in a way, commanded in a revelation, commended rather in a revelation, uh, or at least not disapproved of in a revelation for doing what essentially amounts to dowsing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't exactly from the from the text. It doesn't seem that he was involved in in had the dowsing integrated with the religion. It was like something he did on the side, which of course a lot of people in New England did back then, and even yeah. what if you still do today. Uh, he uh, the, the the text reads something like um, that that uh, that Oliver Cowdery worked worked with a rod, mm-hmm. and that's a euphemism for dowsing. That's historically long used. Um, you were working with a rod means dowsing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in this passage, dowsing is not condemned. In fact, it's a way commended because it says, "How does the rod work in your hands if it isn't through some you know power of God?" I don't know if that's literally how it says it, but yeah, I should have reread this passage to remind myself of it, and I, and I failed to do that. Well, that's okay. In researching the episode, I, um, you know, did some, since I knew you would be our guest, I did some checking on the LDS.org website with the mm-hmm. official Latter-day Saints website, and I found a statement that covers this. And so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll play that for us now. 
Um, according to LDS.org, it says this about dowsing. Joseph Smith and his contemporaries lived in a culture steeped in biblical ideas, terminology, and practices. Biblical accounts, such as the story of Moses and his brother Aaron, described the use of physical objects such as rods to manifest God's will. Many Christians in Joseph Smith's day similarly regarded divining rods as instruments for revelation. They believed these rods could help them find underground water or minerals. Early versions of the revelation in Doctrine and Covenants 8 state that Oliver Cowdery had the gift of working with the sprout or the rod of nature, indicating that he used a divining rod at some point. The Lord acknowledged Cowdery's gift, declaring that there is no other power save God that can cause this thing of nature to work in your hands. When church leaders prepared this revelation for inclusion in the Doctrine and Covenants in 1835, they called Cowdery's gift the gift of Aaron, reflecting its similarity to Aaron's rod. Other sources likewise suggested that Oliver Cowdery, as well as Joseph Smith Sr. and Joseph Smith Jr., had likely used divining rods. But the revelation does not clarify how Cowdery employed his rod. It does indicate this was only one of several gifts available to Cowdery. In addition, the revelation taught Cowdery how to obtain the gift of translation through study, prayer, and the aid of the Holy Ghost. So that sounds quite open uh, to, to dowsing from an LDS perspective to me. Yeah, it, uh, well, of course, there are a couple of issues. You know, if they were to condemn it, then they would essentially be condemning all for country, right? It was a prominent, you know, an important, important figure. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it, it isn't widely embraced or talked about or even known about. But, you know, people who dig into uh, Mormons who oftentimes ignore what's on their own website, uh, if they dig into it and they see that, then they become aware of it. But but the majority of folks in the church today have no concept that any of that happened. Um, and and the, the scripture has since been edited, and that whole part of it has been changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sense of what was trying to be conveyed is still there, but the controversial material, which would have been, would be controversial to some folks, was, uh, was, edited out so <clears throat> it's it's interesting the the issue here is we go back to the hosea passage where the concern is not that you have the rod or the or the branch or whatever but it's how you're using it and what you presume the source of your information is now, in mormonism i've found that there um i think we might have talked about this in our first talk but i don't remember so uh People aren't so much resistant to these kinds of things in Mormonism. It what the key factor is again, it's the source or how you're using it or what, what your intent is. So, uh, like in Catholicism, authority, the ecclesiastical authority, is a very important thing in Mormonism. Probably as much as in Catholicism, and much more than in most Protestant directions. Uh, you don't just decide you're going to be hold the priesthood in Mormonism any more than you do in in, uh, in Catholicism. You have to have that conveyed upon you. You can't just uh, think that God has called you and you become a priest, right? Uh, and so that's very important. But more important even, and, and, and again, the same as in, in Catholicism, the authority to make pronouncements, to issue, if you will, oracles, right? Uh, to 
uh, utter prophecy, to give counsel and guidance from God, has to come through the proper priesthood channels. And where the church runs aground on this kind of stuff, like dowsing and remote viewing and all this stuff, is if you presume to substitute that as an authoritative source for priesthood channels, which are the sources that ought to come through. So if you start, this happened in the early days with, with uh, Hiram Page, who was a guy who found a seer stone. Joseph Smith had used the seer stone translating the Book of Mormon, and, and Hiram Page found his own, and he was going around giving prophecies and, and, and guidance and counsel to the church outside of the hierarchical authoritative or authoritative structure. And he was really calling the carpet for that. He was violating the principles, just as uh, I think we're going to talk about Catholicism, Catholicism mm-hmm. here in a second, just as I think it's probably kind of the same principle of Catholicism that becomes extra, uh, what, what would you call it, not extra judiciously, extra ecclesiastically, whatever, outside from outside the church is an alternative source to the authoritative pronouncements. Uh, it would be frowned on very much there, just as it would be in Mormonism. Let's then talk about dowsing from the perspective of the Catholic faith. Um, of course, the church has a you know a long, continuous history, and so it overlaps with the history of dowsing, and people have had a lot of time to write and think about it. And in reviewing that history for this episode, it's, it's mixed. Uh, there have been Catholics who opposed dowsing and Catholics who favored it. Um, there are, you know, like we said, people in every age who want to attribute anything out of the ordinary to the devil, and there have been people who've done that with dowsing. Uh, but there have also been a lot of Catholics who have done the reverse and considered dowsing entirely acceptable. And in studying for this, what surprised me was how much support for dowsing there has been in the Catholic tradition. Um, a good bit of that history is covered in the book you mentioned, Christopher Bird's The Divining Hand. Uh, of course, the practice, you know, of dowsing was common as a folk discipline in Europe for centuries. It was particularly popular in the 1600s, both in France and in Germany. And there was a lot of discussion of it in Catholic circles. And what really surprised me was just how many members of the clergy have been dowsers, including both priests and bishops. Um, This is really clear. When you go back in history, there have been some very famous priests and bishops who were dowsers. I'll confine myself here to just naming a couple that lived in the 20th century. Uh, One was Father Alexis Boulay, who was born in 1865, and he passed on in 1958. He was a French priest, and he invented the term radiesthesia based on the idea that dowsing may be based on detecting rays that come from the objects being detected. He also founded a group called the Friends of Radiesthesia Society in 1929, and it still exists, and its members study and practice dowsing in France. Another 20th century priest was Father Alexis Mermet, who was born in 1866 and died in 1937. He was a French-speaking Swiss priest, and he was well-known as a dowser. There's even a famous picture of him taken in 1913, where he's standing with a group of dowsers holding their instruments, and Father Mermet is in the center of the photo holding a pocket watch that he's using as a dowsing pendulum because back in the day when men carry, carried pocket watches, they made handy pendulums to douse with. I've seen that picture now that you mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. 
he also wrote a, a famous book called The Principle and Principles and Practice of Radiesthesia. Um, Fathers Boulet and Mermet, of course, were just priests, but there have also been famous bishops, even in the 20th century, who were dowsers or were otherwise supportive of dowsing. One was Bishop Edouard Jeté, who was born in 1898 and passed on in 1988. He was a French-Canadian, and he wrote a book called, and I'll mangle the French, but that's how it goes, uh, Al Sol de Subconscient, or On the Threshold of the Subconscious. And it discussed dowsing, and he, as a bishop, apparently consulted with police in criminal investigations to find missing persons. Another supporter was Archbishop Karl Berg, who was born in 1908 and died in 1998. He was Austrian, uh, the Archbishop of Salzburg, and he wrote a preface for a book by a woman named Kathy Bachler on dowsing called Earth Radiations, again, based on the idea that dowsing works because it detects some kind of radiation being given off by the objects being found. In the preface, he wrote this. Ms. Kathy Backler, a believer and practicing Christian, endeavors to live a good everyday life. With her dowsing instruments, she can find the good places and has thus helped many people, as well as several priests and sisters of our archdiocese. All good things can, however, be abused, and thus also the work with rod and pendulum. Therefore, the Church warns people not to use these instruments for occult experiments. We draw attention to the fact that work with a rod and pendulum can be dangerous if arrogance, curiosity, evil thoughts, or greed are the sole motive. If, however, a Christian wants to do God's will and protects himself with prayers when doing radiesthetic works and uses his or her instruments only in a helping way, based on love, when examining houses and finding water, then this work is blessed by the Church Decree of 26 March 1942. In this sense, I can recommend unreservedly and warmly to believing Christians the work of Ms. Kathy Backler, and especially her book, The Startling Discoveries of a Dowser, now translated into English as Earth Radiation. Dr. Karl Berg, Archbishop of Salzburg. So that was Archbishop Berg's view of dowsing, but the interest, as interesting as the view of an archbishop is, as a Catholic, what I'm interested in even more in is the views of popes, and because that's what's most authoritative. And I did some digging, and I can report on that, too. Uh, first, I, I mentioned Father Mermet's book, Principles and Practice of Radiesthesia. The English version of that book comes with an introduction by the translator, Mark Clement. And in the introduction, Clement writes this. Even the pope himself, who took a great interest in his work, appealed to him for help and guidance to solve problems which had left experts and specialists completely baffled. Unfortunately, um, Clement doesn't name the Pope sought for Father Mermet's help, but based on the chronology of his life, it was likely Pope Pius XI, who was Pope between 1922 and 1939. Uh, Clement continues by saying, He, Father Mermet, was consulted by the Vatican authorities for important archaeological researches in Rome all of which met with success. The records are in the archives of the Vatican Library. So that's one indication that the Holy See was taking an open attitude towards dowsing in the 20th yeah. century, you know, using, it, using, it, using it for archaeological research under the Vatican. Yeah, so th that's intriguing. Um, what you've uncovered here, I think, is really, uh, I'm, I'm 
kind of fascinated by it. I wonder how accessible those records are. Well, um, they should still, I mean, you may need, I did an episode a while back of Mysterious World on the secret archive, which is now called the Vatican Apostolic Archive. And as long as you've got a history credential, you can get a, essentially get a library card and have them pull up whatever you want. Um, As long as you can do the language, right? As long as you can do the language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 19, there's uh, some more to the story. In 1935, Father Mermet's Society uh, sent the collected volumes of their publication, the Bulletin of the Friends of Radiesthesia, to the Vatican. And they donated these volumes to Pius XI to be put in the Vatican Museum. And they got a letter back from the prefect of the Vatican Library, Monsignor Eugene Tisseron who was named a cardinal next year in 1936, and he later became the dean of the College of Cardinals. But in May 1935, Monsignor Tisseron uh, wrote a letter to Leon de la Tre, the secretary, of the, the secretary General of the Friends of Radiesthesia Society, and in it, Monsignor Tisseron said this, I would have written to you much sooner had it not been that I was required to attend an audience of the sovereign pontiff for the purpose of explaining to him personally the nature of the researches to which the members of your association are dedicated, and to tell His Holiness of your wish to have for the officers of your association and for its activities the apostolic blessing. The Holy Father was touched by the sentiments expressed in your letter and has charged me to communicate to you his paternal blessing. I should add that the Sovereign Pontiff has kept the last number of the bulletin of your association that I brought with me to the audience so as to be able to examine it at his leisure. So Pius XI was briefed on what this French dowsing society was doing. He granted them his blessing for them and their work as dowsers. He accepted their gift of the collected volumes of their bulletin for the Vatican Library, and he kept the most recent issue to read himself. Now, all of those are unofficial actions. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just what a pope did. So what I'm most interested in is, are, were there any official acts that the Vatican has taken? And here we come to the 1942 decree that Archbishop Berg referred to. Uh, it was issued by what was then known as the Holy Office. Today, it's known as the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. And it's the Vatican's doctrinal watchdog. It's tasked with protecting the faith against errors. And in 1942, they issued a decree on dowsing that would have been approved by Pius XI. To understand the background for the decree, I need to mention a couple of canons from the Church's official rule book, which is known as the Code of Canon Law. Individual laws are called canons. And in the 1917 Code of Canon Law, which was in force at the time, canons 138 and 139 dealt with things that the Vatican didn't want priests to be getting involved in. Not because the things were necessarily wrong, but because they could cause confusion if priests were engaging in them. For example, they didn't want priests gambling, carrying weapons, going hunting, going into taverns, or performing surgery on people. Since, you know, if the surgery didn't succeed, people could get mad at the priest in the church. You know, the priest killed my uncle, and now I'm mad at Catholicism. So they didn't want priests doing that. Um, in any event, in 1942, the Holy Office passed a or issued a decree that uh, 
that used Father Boulay's term radiesthesia. And in the decree, they said this, The Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office has given serious consideration to the troubles which, to the detriment of religious and true piety, arise from the consultations made by clerics of radiesthesia for divining facts and events. So they've been doing a study of the difficulties that can come up when people have been consulting priests and asking them to douse for them. Uh, the decree deals only with priests, not with lay people who are dowsing. And they say, In view of the directives of Canon 138 and 139.1 of the Code of Canon Law, protecting clerics and religious from those matters which are such as to dishonor their office or dignity or to do possible harm to their authority, the congregation makes the following findings. So they're basing uh, this ruling on the two canons that are meant to keep priests out of confusing, troubling situations that could perplex the faithful. But very importantly, the congregation says, However, the congregation has no wish by this decree to touch upon scientific investigation of radiesthesia. And that's really significant. Even though they're about to prohibit priests from doing certain kinds of dowsing consultations, they explicitly say that they're not prohibiting priests from helping in the scientific investigation of dowsing. So priests are still allowed to douse for scientific purposes. Mm -hmm. They then come to the prohibitions. The most excellent ordinaries of places and religious superiors are ordered to prohibit their clerics or religious by stern directive from ever proceeding with those exercises in radiesthesia which are involved in the above-mentioned consultations. So don't engage in dowsing consultations with the public that could cause problems for your priestly ministry, but feel free to help scientists continue their investigations of dowsing. It will be for these ordinaries or religious superiors, if they consider it necessary or appropriate, to attach a threat of penal sanction to forbidden action of this kind. But if any cleric or religious should repeatedly transgress this ban, or if he should provide an opportunity for serious harm or scandal, the ordinaries or superiors should report this fact to the Sacred Supreme Tribunal, given in Rome at the Chambers of the Holy Office on 26 March 1942. Giovanni Pepe, Notary of the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office. Now, I found a little more interpretive background on this piece uh, in Volume 36 of the what's called the 20th Century Encyclopedia of Catholicism, which was by a Dominican father named Reginald Omez. Uh, it was published in 1958, so it's pre-Vatican II, and it's got an imprimatur, meaning that it's supposed to be free from doctrinal error, so it doesn't contradict church teaching. And in volume 36 of the 20th Century, in Catholic, 20th Century Encyclopedia of Catholicism, which is on psychic phenomena, Father Omez says... When the phenomena under consideration do not seem, however strange they may be, to bear the stamp of a religious or a diabolical origin, the Church refrains from intervening in a province not its own. This, for instance, is the case at the present moment with regard to the phenomena of radiesthesia, thought reading, telepathy, psychometry, and so on, when these occur in a purely secular context. In order to correct the abuses committed by certain priests who, under cover of radiesthesia, were practicing medicine, which they are not allowed to do, the Holy Office on March 26, 1942, published a decree forbidding priests and members of religious orders to practice radiesthesia unless their objectives were purely scientific and their experiments completely impersonal. 
they might not undertake research work connected with medical diagnosis or treatment, the discovery of missing persons, the assessment of character or moral state, etc., but could practice dousing for water or metallic ore. Neither the encouragement nor the disciplinary measures implied that the church was taking up any definite position in these spheres. They are outside its field. So canon law forbade priests from practicing medicine because if you lose a patient, it can get the, get the person mad at the church. But according to Father Omez, some priests were circumventing this by using dowsing as part of their medical consultations and other similar consultations. So in 1942, uh, the decree said, don't do that, even though it doesn't mention medicine in particular. Father Omez was apparently drawing on, an, on additional background for that knowledge. But what's clear from the text of the decree itself is that they are prohibiting priests from doing certain kinds of dowsing consultations for people, but they explicitly say they're not preventing priests from dowsing for purposes of scientific research, and they don't prohibit the laity from doing any kind of dowsing at all. Mm -hmm. And I did a, some follow-up checking to see if this is the most recent uh, Vatican statement that the church has made on dowsing, and it is. So um, the Catholic Church, based on this decree, seems to be taking an approach to dowsing that's very open to it. It expressly permits scientific research into the subject, even by priests who are dowsers, and it has no restrictions on the kind of dowsing consultations that laity can do. So that sounds really open to me. What do you think? It does. So no, I I think that's actually quite commendable. Um, I'm puzzled by why they can't help find missing people. That that one kind of uh, took me off guard. But I I would think that um, now it didn't mention missing people in the decree itself, but that's how it was understood. Right. Um, in the latter passage, the guy's kind of interpreting what. Is. Yeah, but I can see the rationale for that because let's say you're a uh, let's say you're a priest and the police come to you and say we've got this missing person we're trying to find them and you douse to find them and you're wrong mm -hmm. and the person ends up who's been kidnapped let's say they end up dying um, because you didn't find them in time. Well, that's another kind of situation where people could be alienated from their faith. I mean, this priest, he's supposed to have power from God, and he tried to find my brother, and he ended up being killed by the kidnappers. And why didn't God help in this situation? And and so you could, you, it could yeah. be kind of difficult. Yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, that's not a point to debate, really. Uh, mm -hmm. At least you have a, a plausible explanation. Yeah. I, I didn't see one at all to begin with, but um, yeah, so I, you know, it, it seems to me the churches, the Catholic Church, has been pretty open-minded about it. Mormon Church just doesn't have a position, really, and it, it, it isn't hasn't rejected the practice. Just you know, it sort of leaves things open, which is not unusual for uh, for the LDS Church. Uh, what's interesting to me about that, though, is that how much attention the Catholic Church has paid to this. Now, obviously. It's a drop in the bucket compared to everything else they pay attention to. But but nonetheless, there's a fairly extensive historical engagement with dowsing here from the church's perspective. And I think that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, like I said, with, with the Mormon church, they tend to not take a position at all on anything that isn't directly relevant to the church itself, which is in its own way a kind of benign sort of approach. 
it makes a lot of sense. It keeps things less complicated, and, and frankly, c- compared to the volumes of uh, of church governance uh, that the Catholic Church has, uh, the LDS Church is hardly anything. <laughs> you know, of course, it also has a much shorter uh, history. You know, yeah, since Christ. So, um, but yeah, in kind of the same way. I think our attitudes are similar. It's just that yours are more defined. Mm-hmm. Right? They're more defined. And I'm perfectly happy with having it big. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, let's look. Let's talk about dowsing from the reason perspective. Now, uh, sometimes skeptics dismiss dowsing by claiming it's just due to the idiomotor effect. Um, how would you respond to that? Well, I I congratulate them on their insight in terms of the idiomotor effects, but I but I say they're missing the whole dimension of this this process, right? Um, the idea is that okay, yeah, so what? I mean, the idiomotor effect is only an output device in a way. Uh, it, you know, in terms, if we're speaking in terms of computers, it's just an output. It's like a printer, right? You know, you hook it into your, your computer, and then the printer puts out what's in the computer. That's all it does. It's useful for that. But that doesn't mean that the signal that's activating the idiomotor response is necessarily explainable in physicalist terms, right? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have physical origin. Uh, and, and just saying idiomotor doesn't address the source. So to them, uh, again, we actually can trace this back one more step because both remote viewing theory and, and in my view of dowsing theory uh, involves subconscious processing. And of course, the skeptics, the idiomotor effect is a subconsciously processed thing as well. But then what causes the subconscious to react and thus engage the idiomotor process? Well, in my view, it's this non-local signal that comes in. And the skeptic's view, it's, I don't know what. <laughs> you know, It's, I guess, imagination. Uh, I, the model they might suggest is, I suppose, that you have a conscious desire uh, and conscious inclination to locate something, and you have this then unacknowledged, preconceived notion of where that thing might be, and then that activates your subconscious to activate the idiomotor drive. Um, and then of course, in the the non-local version is there's you do still have an intention and a desire to locate something, but what that does is activate this receptive capability where you receive the non-local signal. And that activates subconsciously the idiomotor effect, and then you douse. So to to summarize, both skeptics and dowsers would agree that the idiomotor effect is involved here. If you're Mm -hmm. using a rod or a pendulum or something, there are little subconscious movements that you're making and that tell the rod when to bend or, you know, the pendulum where to go. And the question is, what's res- what's responsible for that? Is it random chance or is it, in on a skeptical view, is it just random chance controlled by your subconscious? Or do you have a subconscious desire of, I want to find water and so now is it, it's going to dip? Or is there a psychic signal that you're picking up subconsciously and then is being manifested through your hands via the idiomotor effect. And it seems yep. to me the the answer to that would be, or the way to find an answer to that would be to say, well, what's what's the data on reliability? Mm-hmm. If it's if it's just random chance, then 
finding things shouldn't exceed random chance. But if you can find things more reliably than random chance, then that suggests there's some sort of information that's making its way into your subconscious that then comes out through the ideomotor effect in your hands. Um, so what do, what do the scientific studies about dowsing say? Do people get better than random chance results? So, of course, it depends on the study. Um, there is the, the results are mixed, as they are in many, many things. But, um, but it's also been the case that dowsing hasn't been so systematically studied as one might think. Partly, obviously, because science dismisses it a priori that it can't possibly work. And so you get, you know, hobby dowsers and, and some, some uh, researchers who try to do research on it and uh, have some success. And sometimes it's well done. Other times it's dubious how well it's done. And, of course, uh, the dowsing uh, estimates of dowsing success are often anecdotal. But there has been fairly recently some interesting research done that tends to show that there is an actually legitimate effect here by a, a guy, a German uh, researcher named Betts. He did a number of studies. Um, and I, I'll briefly go through these. I'm not, I have to re reread them in depth to give you a good yeah. detailed account. But and, the first one, you, you have a, um, a chapter on practical parapsychology and yeah. Edsel Cardenas's uh, Parapsychology, a handbook for the 21st century, where you go through these studies. So if I do. Want to, yeah. If people want to read more about them, there they can get more more in depth information about that. Uh, do you have a copy of that book? I do. Yes. Oh, you're one of the fifteen people who do. I think <laughs> I try to do my research. Yeah, this is a uh, published by a company that tor- notoriously charges a lot for their for their uh, their volumes. Uh, Ed May's Stargate. What does he call it? Stargate Archive. Four volume set. Each volume is hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, very. If you're interested in this field, I do recommend these those documents. They are extremely valuable as a resource. Uh, but you know, the, you may have to buy one at a time on credit or something. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, the same thing with with the, the handbook of the 21st century parapsychology. But yes, uh, I have a chapter in there, co-authored with Garrett Modell, a professor at the University of Colorado. Uh, so that's what he did. Very briefly, uh, two of his studies. One was uh, there was a, an area where they needed to find water. They're trying to track water down. And it was going to be evaluated using your standard water-finding uh, uh, remote sensing technology, uh, and the various ways they use technology to find water that, that, that is scientifically accepted, right? And then a dowser. And under uh, similar, I want to say almost identical, in fact, it might have been exactly the same uh, area. Um, the dowser uh, was assigned to try and find accessible water. Um, and the, of course, then they used the standard technology to do it. And the standard technology uh, was correct three out of, and I don't remember the other number, but it was like 30 times or something like that. Three out of 30 times it was correct. And, uh, and the dowser was right 13 out of 16 times, 16 or 17 times. And uh, that's a big effect size. It's massive. <laughs> so that, that's very provocative. Now, as far as replicating it, I, there, as far as I know, there have been no attempts to replicate it. Of course, the problem with replicating a dowsing situation is 
trying to get a control group, right? This case really lent itself to that because we had the scientific approach and the dowsing approach. And so that's very clear cut. Um, trying to come up with an experiment where you can have the control and the dowser on the same real estate. Uh, and of course, this is a water dowsing we're talking specifically about. Uh, it, it's a bit challenging to do that. So I think that's one reason why they, it has been replicated, as far as I know. Um, Betts also set up another experiment where there was a two-floor, two-story barn. Uh, and on the bottom uh, floor, they laid out a lot of these uh, tubes that were tapped on the ends. And some of them had water in them and some of them did not. And then uh, the dowser was supposed to walk across the top floor and indicate where the uh, tubes with the water in them were. And and obviously, you don't want him to indicate on the, the empty ones. And, and that one, and I don't remember exactly the stats on it, that one was successful as well. Um, so we have two really promising research efforts here. Um, interestingly, of course, a skeptic weighed in, more than one weighed in, and tried to explain away the results. And uh, another researcher, a guy named Ertel, these are, these are all Germans, uh, essentially trashed the skeptics' arguments. That, you know, it was, in fact, I have to remember back, Ertel might have done a replication experiment. I'll have to go relook at that. Um, but uh, but the skeptics, in my opinion, did not coming out look come out looking like they had made much headway. There was kind of like the Russians in in, in Ukraine. <laughs> so. Now, um, in these studies, they were looking for water, and a question that's occurred to me about water. Now, of course, there are different theories about how dowsing might work, and one of the classic theories is that it's based on some kind of like in the case of water, it might be some kind of electromagnetic sensitivity because water has electromagnetic properties. You know, the H2O molecule is polarized electromagnetically. And so maybe someone, you know, if humans like eels have some kind of electrical sense, you might be able to pick up on the location of water. And it it occurs to me that that could even explain differences in studies of of dowsing for water. I mean, if you're looking for a little bitty water bottle, um, as I've seen some studies, you know, by, done by skeptics have used, you know, find the hidden water bottle, you might not find it as reliably as a big, huge underground aquifer because the electromagnetic signal for a little mm-hmm. water bottle is going to be a lot smaller than the signal for an aquifer. Mm-hmm. And so um, if it were the case that... Um, that there were some kind of natural sense that dowsers are using to find water or metals, then um, then that would be an interesting possibility. It could explain some things. And so, but obviously that doesn't explain everything because people use dowsing to find teddy bears and contraband on ships. And so it doesn't explain those. Do you think that dowsing... Ne- is all has one explanation or could there be multiple explanations? Like maybe some cases are electromagnetic sensing, whereas other cases are purely psychic. Or do you think there's only a single explanation for dowsing? Well, ask me what I think is, I think, I think I'll say yes. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, 
anytime we deal with, with a lack of understanding of causality, which we do in all of these related disciplines, like dowsing, remote viewing, scrying, psychometry, all of these kind of things, um, I tend to be agnostic on trying to, uh, I, I tend to actually try and exclude uh, theories more than trying to find out what the right one is, because that's really how you do it. You know, in the, uh, what was it, Michelangelo, whoever it was that said, you know, how do you know how to, you know, what shape to carve out of this rock? You know, he just says, well, I, no, I don't think it's Michelangelo. But anyway, I just, uh, I just carve away everything that isn't the thing I'm trying to get, right? And and that's kind of how you have to approach these kind of unknown, uh, these situations where you don't know the the direct cause and effect um, and, and can't, and it's very hard to trace because, in my opinion, it goes outside of the physical domain. Um, so in this case, I don't know what to think. Um, I know in many cases you can exclude things like uh, electromagnetism, right? So it, it, it used to be long ago, like you mentioned, that people thought it must be magnetism made it work. Of course, back then, magnetism was a magic thing, too. They, you know, they didn't know how, how magnetism, magnetism worked. They didn't know why a magnetized compass needle pointed north. They didn't know why something, one thing, you know, some particular material will attract other materials without any obvious connection between them. Um, it's only been in relatively scientifically relatively recent years that we at least have a working theory for how magnetism actually works. It was after the well, discovery of quantum mechanics that magnetism was finally figured out. Yes, at least as far as they think they figured it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, right now, I don't know what it is. Uh, I, I, we, For example, you can't exclude... Uh, obviously, map dowsing, there's no magnetic connection between you and the person you're trying to find. Um, if you try and douse the future successfully, it can happen. Uh, there's no magnetic possible electromagnetic. We'll expand the spectrum a little electromagnetic possibility there. Uh, and I've always questioned where people say, well, you know, the, if we're out dowsing for oil, it attracts the dowsing rod, which is why it moves, right? And um, and I say, okay, well, how's it attracting it? Well, they, they might say electromagnetically. Okay, you're using a dry wooden stick, which is non-conductive. In fact, it's insulative. You're dowsing for something that does not have electromagnetic properties, at least at the at the this the attractive you know the attractive attractive scale. <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like so, let, let's say you're you know, gold. I don't think you magnetize gold. So is non-ferrous. It does have electrical yeah. properties, but it's not going yeah. to. It's not like a. It's not yeah. like magnetite. It's not going to pull a piece of iron yes. towards it, or a piece of wood. <laughs> yeah. So, so in those circumstances, it's questionable whether magnetic is applicable. Now, uh, we go back to the ideomotor thing, of course, and possibly we are like eels and uh, or some other species that has magnetic electromagnetic sensors well we do have electromagnetic sensors don't we our eyes are our electromagnetic sensing mechanisms right but uh in terms of detecting the emanations that we don't uh have otherwise apparent uh sensory mechanisms for and then it activates the ideomotor response and dowsing implement points or does what it's supposed to do i suppose that's a possibility um how do you tease that out well i don't know 
So consequently, I pretty much am agnostic on any particular explanation. I like the idea of there's some non-local signal that your subconscious picks up, and then that activates the energy motor uh, uh, system, and then you douse. Now, there are some people, just to throw a little wrench into all this, who offer up examples where it's questionable whether it's the idiomatic, idiomotor, idiomotor process that um, that is involved. And, and I can't give you specifics on that, because I, but I have mulled these over in the past. I'm not sure that there's a, a clarity there that can be expressed. Um, so far as I can tell, uh, it's still the top explanation mechanistic explanation for how the you know the implements work and how dowsing functions now um in terms of of there being a non-local signal so by non-local we mean it's not something you're directly detecting from an object it's not like radiations emerging from the object and you're picking up on that yeah well i'm really using it using non-local as a term of art here so mm-hmm. When we're saying non-local, the, the term actually came up, I think, mostly in uh, in quantum physics because you're talking about non-locality or quantum entanglement, which is a a apparent. And I say apparent because of the complications in the whole theory base for quantum physics. But there's an apparent, at least prima facie, cause-effect relationship without any actual causation trans being pass between the two parts of that cause-effect relationship. So and the classic example is the, uh, the quantum particle that you have a certain, has certain properties, and it has a sister particle that's on the other side of the Milky Way, you know, 250 million, million light years away. And if you tweak a property on the one particle, that sister particle reacts on the same property in an opposite function, but it, it reacts instantly, just as if there's some kind of cause going from the, your action on this one particle to that sister particle out there. And yet it's provable that there is no cause that goes between. Um, yeah. To, to give an example, if you take a, um, if you take a photon and you, and you, uh, you split it um, into two photons so that you know that it's uh, polarity is going to be, preserved so Mm -hmm. if it if one of them has polarity that points in one direction the other will have polarity that points in the other direction Mm -hmm. they're they're mirror images of each other they're mirror images and so um so you if you then take them you separate them you then take a measurement of one Mm -hmm. and the idea is okay this one is now polarity north the other one is going to be polarity south and the claim is, and this gets into some deep waters that I'm sure we won't really want to go into no. here, but the claim is that taking the measurement actually causes the photon that you measure to acquire a certain polarity, and then that ripples to the other one instantly. Mm-hmm. And and that's described as being non-local. Now, in parapsychology, people have kind of borrowed this term non-local. It's not really the same as what quantum physicists are using necessarily. Yeah, it's a term of art in quantum physics as well, right? So when they say non-local there, it's also a little bit of a hand wave, just just used in a different way. The reason is because when they talk about local causation, that's where you can trace an actual cause and effect chain 
from an event or cause to the actual outcome or consequence of that causal chain. So, for example, the typical is billiard balls. You, you hit one billiard ball, cue ball, it hits another billiard ball, that one goes and hits another one, hits another one. That's easily observable as a causal chain. Um, and that's local. Even though it could go on for miles and miles and thousands of miles, you can trace every step in it. It makes it local because each one is local to the next link in the chain. But non-local is where you have a cause here and you have an effect here and there's no connection, no, no, that you can discern, right? So, so that becomes what we call non-local. So it applies in quantum physics with this particular quantum entanglement uh, notion. But it's a perfectly legitimate term to use also when we're talking about psychic phenomena, right? Because it's either way, there's a non-local apparent causal connection there, uh, just one that we have no explanation for how the, the cause gets to the effect. Now, in terms of the term signal, um, I know this goes back in remote viewing quite a ways. Ingo Swan, I guess, introduced the term signal line to describe the flow of information that remote viewers are getting. And, um, and, and the term signal kind of brings up a, the image of, of something radiating. You have a signal radiating from a source. And so you might say, well, okay, it's not electromagnetic radiations that people are picking up on. It's some other kind of radiative signal, which is why, uh, Father Mermay referred to this as radiesthesia. Mm. Um, but it occurs to me, especially in light of the non-local aspect of this, you know, like if I'm, suppose I'm a missing person and someone douses and says, where is Jimmy Aiken? And they find me on a map. Well, I'm not emitting any kind of radiation just because I'm lost as right. Jimmy Aiken. Um, so it occurs to me that another explanation, which also is sometimes talked about in remote viewing circles, is it might, rather than being like something radiating, a signal radiating from a source, it might be more like a database lookup, like this information is stored somewhere. Sometimes people use the term Akashic record for that or matrix for that. Maybe it's more like a database lookup, and I just say, okay, where is Jimmy Aiken, or where is the gold, or where is the water? And... Um, and the subconscious is able to access some kind of uh, information source that's non-local. What do you make of that? Well, that is actually the premise of of, uh, of Ingo Swan's idea about how remote viewing works, at least as he as he taught us and for me. Um, the idea is you have this matrix, and the matrix is essentially a giant database. I, I like to joke. In hyperspace somewhere, it's based on a actually a, a Isaac Asimov uh, short story once I read a long time ago. This information database, you know, hovering out there in hyperspace, and uh, and uh, when you remote view, you actually don't, don't necessarily access the target itself. You access the target's data niche, you know, a, a cell, data cell, or whatever, in this massive database they call the matrix. And that's where you get the information from. That's why you can do past, present, or future, because everything known about it is in that matrix. Um, it, it's, a, it's a useful metaphor. I'm not sure how uh, valid it is, except for he did make the argument that uh, 
he didn't make the argument, but he made the suggestion that maybe all the matrix is is the universe at the quantum level. So, uh, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten his name. Uh, you see his face, Bohm, David Bohm, uh, wrote this book called uh, Wholeness in the Implicate Order. And he contrasted the implicate order, which is the level of, of, of subatomic particles, quantum level particles, uh, and the explicate order, which is the world of things, uh, you know, the, the, the Newtonian world, uh, so to speak, where, you know, my television monitor, my computer monitor is part of that, you're part of it, of the explicate world. But the implicate world is exactly the same world. It's just at a different level of, of per perception right so um and there's uh Engel kind of suggested that maybe his idea of the matrix is really just the world at the quantum level because of course quantum level everything is entangled we go back to non-local quantum entanglement right everything's entangled at the quantum level and uh and maybe that's how the actual information is passed around in which case it's sort of true that you are accessing the target, and it's sort of true that you're not accessing the target. <laughs> so, the, you know, there, that, there's some fairly mind-bending things going on here that we don't have a resolution for. It's all speculation at this point. Um, but, yeah, uh, I forgot how I got off on the explanation. What, what was well, the part we, were, we were talking about the different information sources that, um, oh, that right. remote, remote viewers and dowsers might be drawing on in yeah. acquiring information. And it, it, it sounds to me like they may be drawing on fundamentally the same source, although since we don't know what that source is, there's really no way to know that. Right. Uh, I mean, so we don't know if there's no way to know that, but at this point, we don't know of any way there is to know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the situation. One, I do of, wanna... one of John Ashcroft's known unknowns. There you go. Yes, exactly. Um so a, a quick note on the matrix. So Engel used this term matrix and he was using it long before the movie was ever, ever came out. In fact, I'm trying to research this, uh, this, but I think, I think he actually used the term before it was first ever used in this construct. So the idea of the movie matrix came from uh, William Gibson's book, uh, Neuromancer, right? Where you, you plugged yourself into what, we now understand as the internet. Um, the Neuromaster came out in 1979, I think. In the 79 or 81, might have been 81, <clears throat> where the internet was just sort of a proto-thought that was going around, or just, you know, it might have been ARPANET might have existed at that point, but uh, so, so Gibson... Ar really ARPANET, ARPANET was the precursor of the commercial internet. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, and the, a guy connected to the remote viewing program, Jacques Vallée, was instrumental in setting up ARPANET. So, uh, but uh, Ingo was using this term as early as 1975. So well before William Gibson ever published anything on it. Um, and I want to check down, try and track down that cause-effect relationship, you know, to, to kind of do a, a thorough examination of this idea of the matrix. and. And where it came from. So anyway, uh -huh. yeah, that's a little bit of a digression. Sorry. Yeah. So um, on dowsing, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Uh, not necessarily. We exhausted all your questions. That's we have. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily. Well, if somebody wants to read kind of a fun story, 
that involves dowsing. I recommend Orson Scott Card's book, Seventh Son. Uh, I, I presume that quite a few people listening to this are probably familiar with Orson Scott Card. He's one of the most prominent science fiction writers. Yeah. Oh, and I'm a big fan of Ender's Game, although yeah. the, the, the bean cycle is actually better than the Ender cycle. So I've heard those rumors. I've read all the Ender stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, um, I haven't, uh, I haven't oh. got the bean. Oh, you should totally read Ender's Shadow and the subsequent mm-hmm. novels. They are much more direct and straight ahead. And Ender, I've, I've shared Ender's Shadow with other people who've read Ender's Game, and they've agreed it's, it's, it's better. It's well, it t- seeing the story from the perspective of the other character, Bean, adds all kinds of new dimensions to it. Well, I have a copy of Ender's Shadow. I got it right off the bookshelf at Tom Doherty Books. I was there to sign my contract, and they have all these huge shelves full of their books, right? And he said, well, you can have any book here you want. I said, well, I haven't. Let me get grab that one. I've read all the all the Ender's books. Let me let me grab that one. So I grabbed it. I haven't read it yet. I've got so many other other things on my plate. You know what? I read fiction on the elliptical. And I'm almost done with the number book number four in the Expanse series. So I'm looking for something else. I don't want to read another Expanse book yet. So maybe that's the one. I'll finally break down and read Ender Shadow. Check it out. It's it's really good. There is much more to the character Bean than you would know from reading Ender's game. He's well, he's he's really much more complex than you would guess. And you've been there before. So I've been there before. <laughs> So uh, anything you'd like to pitch? Well, folks are interested in dowsing. Um, obviously, there's the American Society of Dowsers. Maybe you have a chapter nearby. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, Bird's book, uh, The Divining Hand, Christopher Bird's book, The Divining Hand, is awesome. Um, but I do offer, uh, I should say another company offers a product that I've collaborated in called uh, uh, well, it's, it's a dowsing DVD set. That's a, it's an actual training program that uh, teaches you the basics and gives you some opportunities to learn how to do dowsing. Uh, not so much uh, as I call it continuum dowsing, or it doesn't teach you how to douse for water. It teaches you how to do like map down is dowsing and diagram dowsing and, and things like that. It's called well, if you go to learndowsing.com, you can you can uh, you can order it, but. Um, yeah, I mean, people are interested. I, uh, I, I am, I am biased, perhaps, but I think that's the best, the best uh, distance learning or home study course you can get to, to help you learn how to douse. I've heard gotten a lot of uh, success stories from students about how they've used that. One guy even won a hundred thousand dollars in the lottery. Uh, hey, gone through my course. Now I'm not promising you're going to do that, but. But it, it, when it comes to success stories, that's quite a bit of success. <laughs> so. Indeed. And we'll have links to all of those uh, resources so that people can uh, investigate them further. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us again, Paul Smith, here on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Well, thank you. I, uh, I always enjoy interacting with you. You you do more homework than any 10 other interview hosts that I've ever talked to. <laughs> and uh and you ask really great questions, and of course we have a great uh, friendly interaction, and I appreciate that. So uh, thank you. I hope to come back again on some other topic that we haven't beat to death. Right? We'll do it. Thank you so much. You betcha. 
Anything else we should say before we close today's episode? No, I'd just like to thank Dr. Paul Smith for appearing once again on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. It's always great to have him on, and we'll have him on again in the future. Awesome. Looking forward to that. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on dowsing? Dowsing is an ancient practice that has been used to find many things. It's most famously used to find water, but it's also used to find minerals, gold, and oil. It's even used to find missing people and criminals and to answer all kinds of different questions. Dowsing is not mentioned in the Bible, and the Catholic Church is actually open to the practice. In its most recent authoritative statement on the subject, the Church did not have a problem with priests dowsing in support of scientific research, and it didn't have a problem with lay people dowsing at all. Uh, dowsing does not involve calling on spirits. Um, it presents itself as a natural psychic ability, which means that if it works, God would have built it into human nature. And there is some scientific evidence suggesting that it does work. But as always, you can make up your own mind. Jimmy, can you tell us what further resources we can look at to learn more about dowsing? We'll have a link to uh, the book that Paul recommends, uh, Christopher Bird's book, The Divining Hand, The 500-Year-Old Mystery of Dowsing. Also, the book I mentioned, Etzel Cardenia's uh, book, Parapsychology, a 21st Century Handbook, that has uh, a chapter in it called Applied Psy, which is co-authored by Paul Smith. And actually, the Kindle version of the book isn't too expensive, so uh, check that out. Also, uh, Cathay Bockler's book, Earth Radiation, which... We'll have a link to a, a physical copy of, and it's available to read online at archive.org. Abbe Alexis Mermet's book, Principles and Practice of Radiesthesia. Etzel, um, I mentioned Etzel Cardenia's book. Also, uh, we mentioned the Stargate archives that Edwin May puts out. We'll have a link to the first volume of that from which you can find the others. Articles on the idiomotor effect, uh, the Jewish Encyclopedia on Teraphim. Uh, the LDS Church on Divining Rods, well, uh, the page we quoted from. Uh, Michael Faraday's Idiomotorist Effect Experiment. We have a video on that so you can see yourself how he was able to demonstrate that things like table turning are produced by that. Also, uh, an article on archaeology and dowsing. Uh, information about Father Alexis Boulay in French uh, and fa uh, Father or Abbe Alexis Mermet in French, a link to the American Society of Dowsers, and Paul's DVD course at LearnDowsing.com. So that's it from us. We would love to hear your theories about dowsing. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work in this episode. You can check out what they do by going to my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash jimmyakin. And while you're there, I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to the channel. We're trying to get up to 40,000 uh, subscribers, and I'd, I'd really appreciate it. So please do subscribe and hit the like button. 
uh, and uh, click the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new Mysterious World video or one of the other videos that I put out. Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next week, we'll be answering patrons' questions. So we'll be talking about subjects like, could pre-Adamites be aliens? What produces crop circles? Uh, planetary defense systems, the souls of early hominins, and more. Excellent. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends. It's the number one way we get new listeners. And write a review or give a rating wherever podcasts directories allow you to do that. That helps us grow this community and reach more people. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 247. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Star Wars. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars.